0: Okay, I have three mind renewal questions. Who does God say he is? Who does God say that I am? How do I trust and follow him? What do I use to answer these questions? Scripture. Remember the core of the parfait, the gospel, the confession of faith, and the greatest commandments, to love God, love others. So often Christianity is boiled down to obey God just because or some sort of moralism. How do I follow God? would be the question, with no consideration of how we need to trust him first in order to do that. And that's why the first half of the third question is essential. How do I trust? The first two questions renew our minds to why we should trust. See, trust has to proceed following. Otherwise, we are leading God. Otherwise, we are choosing what is good in our own eyes and slapping a Jesus label on it and expecting God to back us up with blessings and growth. Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith or trust, it is impossible to please God. We must trust first. We trust best when we renew our minds to a biblical worldview. We can't use all of our Bible knowledge on a mind that is conformed to this world or some brand of culture. Welcome to Anachinosis, where we renew our minds towards biblical worldview and the scriptures. This is a show for anyone looking to build or repair their biblical worldview, whether you are 100% comfortable in current Christian culture or you feel like an outsider looking in. Everyone is welcome. My name is Jeremy Agan. I'm just a guy with a Bible literacy background who has ASD and who thinks a lot about how to think. Today we're going to begin applying our biblical worldview. Let's renew. Remember those questions we tried to handle with only Bible facts in episode one? Let's circle back to those now. I cannot give definitive answers for all time, but I will share my processes. If I offend you at any point today, I am sorry. That is what many people aim to do these days, but this podcast is not one of them. Also, in an upcoming episode, we'll talk about handling offenses since we Live in a time of intentional offenders. So, as we approach each question, we will renew our minds before we answer. And this won't be simple. We're going to have to think critically. We will have to cling to the scriptures tightly, both passages that inform us of what is sin and inform us to love first. We have to have both conviction and compassion, as the AND campaign puts so clearly. Question one is heavy because it is so emotionally charged. Should I go to a gay wedding? Remember in episode one, we tried to answer with just Bible facts. Unfortunately, there are no invitations given to any gay weddings in scripture for us to evaluate the character's response. And even if there was, it wouldn't be a slam dunk because Bible characters often do the wrong thing unless they are Jesus of Nazareth. So let's use our biblical worldview. Where do I start? By renewing my mind. I remind myself of who God says he is and who he says I am now. He is good. I am loved. I have been made new. He is trustworthy. And then how can I trust and follow him? So let's start with biblical conviction. The scriptures say that practicing homosexuality is sin, or, at the very least, a product of impure hearts. Now, there are arguments about historical context and the ancient views of sexuality, and some of those arguments are more or less compelling than others. But we have that conviction about homosexuality. Let's pair that with biblical compassion people who are entering into same-sex marriage are equally loved images of God and deserving of our best human responses. The very fact that we're asking the question, should I go to a gay wedding, already eliminates the talk of legality or any of those things. Gay marriage is legal. The American Constitution grants rights of this kind. And so we're not talking about that. We're talking about hearts. So what's the big deal? The big deal is that married people usually have sex. They are sexually attracted to each other. Okay, we know that desires like lust are named as sin in the Sermon on the Mount. However, attraction and lust are not the same thing. If one becomes a Christian and is walking with the Spirit, they can expect to exude the fruit of the Spirit and for the deeds of the flesh to cool off. We should expect to experience less idolatry, less jealousy, less divisions, less impurities, and less sexual immoralities. If attraction is the same as lust, then we might expect gay Christians to become less gay over time, but if we're listening to them, this isn't the case. Sexual orientation seems to be a different category than lust, but it can lead both to lust and sexual immorality if enacted upon. Now, maybe you hear me say gay Christian, and you don't have a category for that. This could be good or bad. It's good if you don't label people, right? Like we don't have uh, corporate greed Christian or gluttony Christian. And I I think I might be the latter, actually. I mean, you could offer me sex, drugs, rock and roll, or a spread of deliciously fattening foods, and I'll struggle the most, uh, you know, to stay away from the food. Good news is that Jesus saves anybody and removes our sin as our identity. I am not gluttony Christian, I'm Christ in me who really wants to eat chicken wings. So it's good if you don't put labels on people, but it's bad if you don't have a category for a gay Christian because you don't think that Jesus really does save everybody, um, because he'll save anyone who calls upon his name. and He does take away our sin and the brokenness of our identities. Now, working against this biblical worldview is our culture that makes our sexual orientation a central part of our identity. This forces us to use an otherwise broken title, gay Christian, someone who identifies as both. My friend Brant wrote an amazing piece on his website, branthanson.com, under the title Does God View Me as a Heterosexual? It turns out God doesn't see us as our sexual orientation, and it's well worth the read. Okay, now we have the gay marriage question still sitting there. I wanna risk for a moment talking about the often ignored point of view of the gay Christian. Oh, I just realized I might've also assumed something that we don't all agree on. Um, That sexual orientation isn't a choice, not purely. So let me address that quickly. The American Psychological Association says it's not a choice that it is a result of a complex interaction of environmental, cognitive, and biological factors. So what does that mean? If I have my compassion glasses on, some gay Christians say this isn't a choice for them. They're stuck being attracted to the same sex as I am being attracted to the opposite sex. And if someone told me to stop being attracted to women, that wouldn't be possible. I could choose not to have sex with women, but that wouldn't stop the attraction. And by the way, scripture does tell me to be faithful to my wife, and so I am supposed to avoid my attraction turning into lust or action with other women. Also, as a person with ASD, which is autism spectrum disorder, I feel a special empathy for this situation. I, I can't get rid of ASD with any amount of therapy. I can only cope. And so that means it's part of my identity and it's so, in, it, it's so intrinsic to my whole day that I just, I choose to identify myself with the label. Others will look at me um, as if my non-neurologically typical brain is a mental disorder. Some religious circles call it sin and would ask me to pray it away. I call it me. And it's how the God who doesn't make mistakes made me. So he must have a plan for me to live for him this way. So I imagine same-sex attraction Can feel the same. And so we have a gay Christian couple. They trust Jesus for forgiveness of sin and they're making a decision about marriage. There's two primary answers, right? One gay Christian might have decided to live a life of celibacy, choosing to willfully not enter into relationships and not enter into marriage. The thought is if they remain celibate, they can avoid the sin of practicing homosexuality. Also, as I touched on earlier in my heterosexual example, God very much asks each of us to be sexually faithful, first in abstinence and then to our spouse. And so it's just, it's not unique to homosexuality for God to ask the Christian to trust him with some sort of sexual boundary. Now, celibacy was celebrated in the early church, but they had a better community for it then? You had the monks and the nuns and the monasteries and celibate people in 2021 instead have lonely apartments and really weak singles ministries at churches that are often most focused on helping the singles find that someone special. What if they're trying not to find someone special? Can we have compassion on, on that? That pain, that fear of accidentally finding love? Now, there are many people who are called to celibacy and they feel truly fulfilled. The Apostle Paul lived this way. It can be good, but it also can not be good for man to be alone. And that's why some gay Christians have chosen to marry. Now, how do they hold to Scripture with conviction and make this decision? Well, some some don't. Some will just not... Uh, pay attention to that, but there's also some who have embraced an LGBTQ affirming theology, a hermeneutic, to be able to um, read scripture in a way that affirms gay marriage. It is worth examining, just like any hermeneutic in any theology, you should chew up the meat and spit out the bones. You might find some of the arguments have merit. You might find them not very convincing. One thing I do agree with is that Jesus was about the inclusion of the sexually different that at one time in Israel's history had been blocked from the temple, the barren women and the eunuchs. And Isaiah had prophesied of the day when both would sing for joy in God's presence. And then we see one of the first Gentile converts was a eunuch. Now, it's not exactly the same as the LGBTQ, community, but it's not nothing. God includes where others exclude. But let's say that I can't hold to a gay affirming theology. Also, it's problematic that it's called gay affirming theology because rejecting it looks like gay denying theology. And I don't deny you. I don't deny your freedom of choices. I definitely do not deny the complexity of your relationship realities. I affirm you and your experience. My understanding of scripture just doesn't affirm gay marriage in the same way that it affirms heterosexual marriage. But the New Testament doesn't deny it either. It was forbidden for Israel under the law, but the grace covenant loosened up the strings a bit. And the couple times homosexuality is mentioned in the New Testament, it isn't mentioned in the New Testament. It's bad translating something awful and violating of young boys was happening in the Roman Empire and it's being referenced, but, but I'm not convinced that anything close to modern monogamous gay marriage was on the mind to affirm or to deny because it wasn't in culture to address. In the end though, it's not my call. So there we are. Some people stay single, some get married. Christian or not, Two people of the same sex want to get married, and you're invited. If you have a gay-affirming theology, you already have your answer. But what if you don't? The scriptures do not tell us the answer in a command or a prohibition. It speaks a couple times about sexual activity, but not about the marriages. So my conviction cup is not very full. The scripture says I should love my neighbor as myself, so my compassion cup is very full. If I'm invited to this wedding, I'm likely related to or socially connected to this person or persons, and going to the wedding would undoubtedly show love, and not going could be interpreted as prejudice. But would it also show support of their choice? This is where people make different decisions with the facts. Some will say no. It it shows support of a friend on an important day in their life, and I can't hold them accountable to my personal beliefs, thinking maybe of Roman soldiers. Um, Something that the Jews in the first century felt were the very presence of evil. And then Jesus encouraged his followers to go an extra mile with that soldier to help him out so we could actively love those who we disagree with. We also have no problem going to weddings of people's second and third marriages, which is also discussed as not a good choice in the scriptures. Now, others will say, you know what, if I'm at a gay wedding, I'm supporting same-sex relations and I don't have peace about that, so who's correct? They're both correct because of the law of liberty. Let's look at a part of Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 8, verses 1-13. I'll read from the CSB. So some quick context, the Corinthians lived in a pagan culture where almost all affordable meat was connected with pagan worship. And the legitimate question was, can we eat that meat or is it tainted? Paul says, now about food sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone thinks he knows anything, he does not yet know as he ought to know it. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. About eating food sacrificed to idols, then, we know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God the Father. All things are from him, and we exist for him, and there is one Lord Jesus Christ. All things are through him, and we exist through him. However, not everyone has this knowledge. Some have been so used to idolatry up to now that when they eat food sacrificed to an idol, their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not bring us close to God. We are not worse off if we don't eat, and we're not better off if we eat. So if we pause there for a second, Paul's response is basically three things. There's no such thing as other gods, so the food is not a sin to eat. It doesn't help or hurt your standing with the true God if you eat it and some people don't feel the freedom to do it. So, some of the Corinthians could eat the meat without guilt, knowing God was okay with it. Essentially, God could see that they weren't endorsing the sin. And some Corinthians couldn't do this. They had no peace about it. In the book of Romans, when talking about the same subject, Paul makes it clear that anyone who doubts their freedom in Christ to eat the meat but eats anyway are not eating in faith. And everything done outside of faith is sin. Uh, So he continues in 1 Corinthians, But be careful that this right of yours in no way becomes a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you, the one who has knowledge, dining in an idol's temple, won't his weak conscience be encouraged to eat food offered to idols? So the weak person, the brother or sister for whom Christ died, is ruined by your knowledge. Therefore, if food causes my brother or sister to fall, I will never again eat meat, so that I won't cause my brother or sister to fall." So I think it's clear here, our personal freedom can be a stumbling block to another Christian who hasn't processed things for themselves, they haven't renewed their mind, they haven't searched the scriptures, they haven't prayed independence on God. Paul says there are strong brothers and sisters, and then there are weak brothers and sisters. The strong are those who have come to a spirit-led and biblically informed conclusion. Some are going to the gay wedding. Some are not. The weak are not those who choose the opposite of you. So the weak are not the Pharisees in your life. The weak are those who haven't made a decision yet and they could be swayed by what others have chosen in faith. The weak are those who borrow other people's worldview. Do you see the problem with Christian worldview versus biblical worldview, where everyone tells you what you you should do? It keeps everyone in weakness. They haven't processed things for themselves. As Christians, we're free to engage in social practices and customs that are not specifically forbidden by biblical commands. Yet, the Holy Spirit may prompt us to refrain from these. And then the principles of love must take precedence over the law of liberty. We do not try to sway. We do not flaunt our freedoms. But we are free. So, if you have renewed your mind and come to a biblically informed decision to go to the wedding... You do not need to consider those who would picket the wedding. You cannot make them stumble because they have decided solidly for themselves. You cannot uh, cause someone to stumble by not going when they're going because they have solidly decided for themselves. We would wanna consider if there are any weak brothers or sisters in our circle of direct influence that would be impacted by your decision or borrow your process instead of trusting God themselves. Question number two, should you protest white nationalists? Again, in episode one, we tried to answer these with just Bible facts. Unfortunately, No, I don't think it's unfortunately, but nobody in scripture was protesting for white power or against it for us to have any data. And again, even if they did, the Bible characters often do the wrong thing. So let's use our biblical worldview, starting with renewing our mind. I remind myself of who God says he is and who he says I am now. And he is good and I am loved and I am made new and he is trustworthy. And then how can I trust and follow him? Now that might sound really repetitive right now because we just did it with the other question, but that usually in your day that's renewing your mind is not something that you have just done Um, and it's it's a key piece. So now that we are trusting him and we care about what he has told us, let's start with biblical conviction. Scripture is clear. Jesus doesn't want you to be a racist. Racism is bad. Now, unfortunately, someone out there might ask for proof of this claim. Welcome to 2021. Jesus' actions demonstrated his view of the equality of mankind and how broken racial inequity in culture was. So Jesus, if you remember, went into Samaria and engaged with people there instead of walking all the way around it, as was the Jewish cultural, cultural norm. He also wasn't sexist as he talked to the woman at the well there in John 4. If you remember, the Good Samaritan parable was to answer a question about who your neighbor was. Who should, you know, who do I actually have to treat kindly? Hoping it's a short list. And Jesus used the story of the Good Samaritan to say, everyone is your neighbor. And he even cast the enemy of the people as the hero in the story while the religious good guys fell on their face in Luke 10 we can remember Jesus healed Romans, Romans were the enemy of the Jewish people, they were the evil occupiers of the land that God gave them but Jesus treated them well in Matthew 8 also Jesus healed a Greek woman's daughter from demon possession in Matthew 15, you see him crossing racial lines here And Jesus sent the Holy Spirit to the disciples to proclaim the gospel to all nations gathered there. It wasn't withheld for his own people at the beginning of Acts and all through the church. The Apostle Paul was all about equality too, but I'll stop there. That's our biblical conviction. Racism is wrong. It represents superiority, selfishness, hatred, fear, and cruelty. So let's pair that with biblical compassion. I need to love my neighbor as myself. In this situation of protesting white nationalists, uh, I have two neighbors to love. I have the neighbor who has to hear hate language that they're not wanted in this country. And then I have the white nationalist who is also my neighbor. So now if I love my minority neighbor, I may wish to peacefully protest on their behalf. If influencing governing powers in other ways has been exhausted, I might want to protest. You, you wouldn't want to participate in looting or rioting since that is associated with stealing and violence, but protest itself isn't forbidden. In fact, you could say it's very biblical to seek to reverse injustices, but some will choose not to do this. Either their conscience isn't clear or they fear the slippery slope of protest into rioting, possibly... Um, their career choice, maybe they're a public figure, it makes it difficult to participate. A reading of Romans 13, 1 through 7 will lead people to different places. It leads some to passivism. It leads some to activism. However, before Romans 13 is Romans 12. And in Romans 12, 14 to 21, it reads this, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud. Instead, associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Give careful thought to what is honorable in everyone's eyes. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for God's wrath because it is written, Vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For in doing so, you'll be heaping fiery coals on his head. Do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. Some of us will see peaceful protest against white nationalists as honorable and attempting peace for all, associating with the humble, not joining with evil, but conquering it with good. Some of us will see peaceful protest as getting in the way of peace and a passive form of vengeance. Whatever we do, it should be unto the Lord in faith and not fear. So what do we do with the white nationalists, especially when so many of them are also claiming Jesus while idolizing leaders like themselves? How can we show them love without endorsing the sin? Passing out water at an insurrection to heap burning coals on their head is likely a bridge too far for many. If we live with one another in humility, we can have an open agreement that we all screw up. I'll account for my issues, others will account for theirs. But with each other, it's a scary place when someone shows you your blind spots. But from the right messenger, it can be powerful. So be the right messenger. The wrong messenger says that they're speaking truth and love, but the love can't be felt. Another wrong messenger says that they're speaking truth and love, but the truth part isn't very clear. Maybe protesting would make you the wrong messenger for some, yelling across at each other. Maybe protesting would make you the right messenger for some because of the respect that is given to your courage and strength. What can I say this? white nationalist friend i love you i want the best for you and i'm an american too and i'm white also but this ain't the way because the only way is the way of christ and he puts no priority on our color or our country we are a small portion of the church a global colorful vibrant diverse church to be a white nationalist is to desire white supremacy It's to hate your brother and sister in Christ. Your supremacy is others' pain, and it's never Christ's way to seek the exaltation of yourself at the expense of others. Please rethink this. Maybe I'm not the best messenger either, but I hope you listen to someone who is. Next question, should you call ICE about a suspected illegal immigrant in your area? You can't answer this with just Bible facts. There were varying immigration systems in scripture, but never an ICE program, and few nations were as desirable and free as America that people would be fleeing to. So let's use our biblical worldview. I start with renewing my mind, which helps me trust God's answers. Then, how do I trust and follow him? And here is where your biblical conviction and biblical compassion probably can have an overlap. Many places in Scripture it mentions welcoming the foreigner. Israel's immigration program was in Deuteronomy 10:18, Psalm 1469, and Jeremiah 7:6. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Much like America, Israel was founded by immigrants and had a policy that everyone was welcome. Do you see the conviction in the command from God to love the sojourner, yet the compassion that's baked in it too? So why is this a divisive issue among Americans? There are also places in Scripture, like Romans 13, where we're told to obey our governing authorities. We must have conviction to do that as well. We might not like them, they might even hurt you, but we are to be subject to them. This isn't submission, but an acceptance of our fate. If we're kind to the king, they will return kindness. If we are attempting to overthrow the king, we are subject to his power. For the person operating out of a biblical worldview, we can't simply choose law and order. We can't simply choose, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Because scripture says both. In that light, we should be a people who desire compassionate immigration programs. This, of course, requires wisdom in our capacities and known threats but when you take out the the hyperbole fear-mongering politics immigration reform that's safe for americans and is a hope to fleeing people is possible plus to the person who's sincerely wanting america to be a christian nation if that's like your jam A little-known fact is that a larger percentage of people seeking American citizenship from the outside are Christian than there are percentages of American-born Christians. But let's return to the question. Should I turn an illegal immigrant over to ICE for deportation? Quick follow-up question. Are you racially profiling? Or do you really know that person's legal status? Because again, racism is bad. What should your primary concern for your neighbor be? Food, shelter, gospel, love, peace, or legal status? The church at large has usually been on the side of providing sanctuary for the hurting. Even in comic books, churches protect the X-Men from the government. Only recently has the American church's posture towards immigration turned into a fear-based decision. But here's where it gets sticky, and two people with biblical worldview may disagree. Making a distinction between illegal immigrant and legal immigrant. The level of the law of liberty they have in their Holy Spirit conviction to aid and abet or to turn in a person with an illegal status can differ from one person to another. They might say the biblical fact that we're to care for the unfortunate does not mean we should violate the law in doing so. That is the limitation of their grace. They would have the conviction that supporting, enabling, or encouraging illegal immigration is, therefore, a violation of God's word. They might say that those seeking to immigrate to another country should always obey the laws of that country, and while that might be frustrating or cause delays, it doesn't give you the right to violate the law. Of course, it's not illegal to not turn someone in. It is, however, illegal in some states to help or hide an illegal immigrant. That doesn't mean it's exclusively wrong. I present to you the Diary of Anne Frank. What is the biblical solution to illegal immigration? Obey the laws that are. Work to change those that are unjust. What can be done in regards to an unjust immigration law? It's always completely within the rights of citizens to change those. If it's your conviction that an immigration law is unjust, do everything that's legally within your power to get the law changed. Pray, petition, vote, peacefully protest, etc., As Christians, we should be the first to seek the change of any law that's unjust, but at the same time, we are to demonstrate our submission to God by obeying the government he has placed in authority over us. The love of Christ or the love of law? Can you do both? Next, should you give a homeless person money? Finally, we have uh, a question that has some biblical representation in the narrative. Peter and John are stopped by a beggar at the temple who's looking for money. They don't have any, so they offer him a complete healing instead. Whoa, which is really cool, but not totally helpful here. But then there's Jesus. Ten lepers likely homeless because of how they were treated at the time, came to him seeking healing. He healed all ten. What's interesting about that is only one returned to give thanks. Does this mean we should help the homeless and give them money with zero concern of what they will do with it? Let's use our biblical worldview. Where do I start? By renewing my mind. I remind myself of who God says he is and who he says I am now. With that fresh trust, I ask, how can I follow him? Scripture says we should care for the downtrodden, but how? Jesus gave away healing, knowing, knowing most of the people, nine out of ten, would abuse it. And really, I'm glad I serve a God like that, because he healed me from my sin and made me new, and I can't help but abuse that. He's so good to me. Should I help the homeless and give them money with zero concern of what they will do with it? Some people will say yes. Who am I to judge? Others will say giving money to the homeless will lead to the destruction of the person. They might opt to give a gift card or physical food or offer a job or offer shelter instead. The only wrong answer is to ignore them when you have the means to help. Last one, should you be friends with someone in a cult? This should be easy, right? All of the early church missionaries reached out to the lost, and sometimes they were uh, people who were steeped in other religious practices. But is reaching out the same as friendship, and can you be effective in outreach without relationship? So, again, we would renew our mind. This helps us trust God's answers. Now how do I trust and follow him? Scripture says to be in the world, but not of the world. And scripture also says to know the lost and love the lost. Scripture also says to protect yourself from false gospels. Going as far as to say in 2 John 1.10, If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your home and don't greet him. For the one who greets him shares In his evil works. Now, believing that a greeting implies acceptance of the person's message, so some will seek to isolate themselves from that person, yet some of us will befriend and engage in conversations with a cult member in an effort to share the true Jesus. Maybe there's a way to split the middle on this. One time, a student of mine asked a couple door to door cult members to meet him and a friend of his at Taco Bell. I mean, that's neutral ground, right? And then he brought me, his Bible teacher. It was a great time of tacos, truth, and testimonies. And uh, that's a story for another day. How does biblical worldview like this really work? if we don't all end up in the exact same place. I mean, Christian worldview is telling me how to think, but at least we all end in the exact same place. Biblical worldview, that is me and scripture and trusting Jesus and coming up with a different answer than my neighbor, isn't that just moral relativism? Here's the thing, true biblical worldview isn't based on what is accepted in mainstream Christianity or mainstream culture or any subcultures. True biblical worldview won't match a political party. True biblical worldview won't match any brand. We all share the same inspired scriptures for our knowledge, but we each have a personal relationship of dependency on Jesus. And the Bible facts don't differ from one person to another. But one of those Bible facts is that not every Christian is given the same amount of felt or experienced liberty, or as Peter called it in 1 Peter 4.10, varied grace. When we pair varied grace with our limited and broken interpretations of scripture, we'll end up in different places. Something we'll aim to examine in an upcoming series. So three questions to ask yourself about your landing spot on a decision or choice to know that i haven't just mo- done some weird uh, mystical moral relativism and i'm just justifying my decisions here's how you know that you're you're within the realm of biblical worldview number 1 is this loving god number 2 is this loving others and 3 does this match the gospel truth of Jesus' death and resurrection for all humankind. If you can honestly answer yes to all three, you're closer to the right decision than not. Thank you for listening. Anakinosis is a project for anyone anywhere who's looking to renew their biblical worldview. Next time, I'll introduce you to the practice of defending your mind and your biblical worldview.